Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel reading. This is a recording of a Bible study I do every week in person at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel, and you would be most welcome. Just email me for the details. But it is here for you to benefit from, and I hope it enhances your experience of the Mass. So without further ado, enjoy a recording of this study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Come, Holy Spirit, we praise you, God. Thank you, Jesus. Praise you. Lord God, we glorify your name. We praise you for who you are. and You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Prince of peace. We pray tonight, Lord, that in all the ways that we are looking for your lordship to reign in our lives, for your peace to dwell in our hearts, for everything that you are to soak into every part of our lives, Lord, we pray that we would have a spirit of openness here and to receive that as we dive into your word. Guide us. Help us to be focused on you during this time and listening attentively to how your spirit is moving in our midst. We pray tonight, Lord, for any distractions, worries, or anxieties that may be on our hearts or plaguing our minds, that you would remove them from us and just breathe upon us a spirit of peace and rest, a spirit of confidence in you and trust that your will is being done in our lives, whether we can recognize it or not. We pray, God, that your words would breathe life and love, truth, goodness, and beauty into each one of us, and we lay this time at your feet, asking that your will be done. We pray all of this in your most precious name, Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome, welcome, hello. We are in Mark chapter 1, verses 40 through 45, a small but mighty passage tonight. A lot of cool stuff in this passage. Um, so this happens in the events directly after uh, our reading from last week where Jesus heals uh, Simon Peter's mother-in-law. There are other healings that happen. He goes off by himself to pray. Simon Peter comes, find, comes and finds him and says, everybody's looking for you. And he says, all right, let's go somewhere else. And this is one of the somewhere else's he goes. The next recorded thing uh, happening is this cleansing of a leper. Okay, Mark chapter 1, verses 40 through 45. We're going to read through this twice through. This is the gospel for this upcoming Sunday, the sixth Sunday in ordinary time. This first time through, just get a picture for the scene. Okay, Jesus is traveling through Galilee. He's just began his public ministry, starting to gain attention, and he has this interaction. A leper came to Jesus and kneeling down, begged him and said, if you wish, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand, touched him, and said to him, I do will it. Be made clean. The leprosy left him immediately, and he was made clean. Then, warning him sternly, he dismissed him at once. Then he said to him, 
See that you tell no one anything, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses prescribed. That will be proof for them. The man went away and began to publicize the whole matter. He spread the report abroad so that it was impossible for Jesus to enter a town openly. He remained outside in deserted places, and people kept coming to him from everywhere. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Already at the end of chapter 1, and Jesus is already famous. So we're going to read this a second time through. This time through, you get an image for this scene, and I'll paint some context uh, in a little bit, but uh, you have an idea of what this might look like in your mind. This time, let's not pay attention how we would interpret this theologically. Let's pay attention particularly to the words. Uh, Sacred Scripture has the ability to speak directly to us uh, and the voice of Jesus to speak to us um, through his word. And so uh, just pay attention if there's any word or detail, anything that resonates with you, stands out to you, sparks something in your mind. doesn't have to do anything with the passage or its context, but it just relates to a detail or a word. Just hang on to that. See what the Lord might be saying to you through that. The second and final time through, Mark 1, starting in verse 40. A leper came to Jesus and kneeling down, begged him and said, If you wish, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand, touched him, and said to him, I do will it. Be made clean. The leprosy left him immediately, and he was made clean. Then, warning him sternly, he dismissed him at once. Then he said to him, see that you tell no one anything, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses prescribed. That will be proof for them. The man went away and began to publicize the whole matter. He spread the report abroad so that it was impossible for Jesus to enter a town openly. He remained outside in deserted places and people kept coming to him. From everywhere. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you to take a few moments to reflect on the things that stood out to you, to identify them, to ask, why did this strike me? Why did this stand out? As well as any questions that were posed as you're reflecting on this or reading it. If you're watching this later, please let us know in the comments what stood out to you. But for those of us here, we're going to take about the next 10 to 15 minutes at your tables and just share what stood out to you and why it did and any questions that you have. And then we'll bring it back to the large group for teaching and questions. Take the next 10 to 15 minutes. Leprosy. I love talking about leprosy because it's fascinating. Uh, Let's put this in context. So Jesus encounters a leper. Why is this particularly noteworthy or extraordinary? Because if you pay attention to the context here, last week Jesus left what city? He left Capernaum. Chapter 2, where is he right after this? Back in Capernaum. So he leaves to go do, according to Mark, this one important thing. It's a very beautiful kind of detail that like Jesus leaves all of this attention all of this potential popularity to go find this one person and then comes back. So that's a really beautiful thing just to reflect on for you and I, that Jesus is willing to kind of leave all of that to go find the one, us. But he does this because the leper is ostracized from society. 
Leprosy was something that we see uh, come up a few times in the Old Testament. So if you were to hear this as a Jewish reader or listener, or if you would have been a witness to this in, in the first century, you immediately would have probably thought of three instances in the Old Testament. Uh, the first is uh, in Numbers chapter 12, where Moses and Aaron's sister Miriam is punished with a scaly inf infection that's akin to leprosy because Miriam and Aaron are grumbling about the fact that Moses married a Cushite woman that he married someone outside of the tribes of Israel. And they're grumbling about this. Why did God choose Moses to be a mediator? He's not like living up to the law. He married someone outside of this. And then God's basically like, I chose who I chose. And he punishes Miriam with leprosy. And Moses appeals to God on her behalf. He says, please don't, please heal her. Please don't do this. And God essentially says like, there needs to be consequences. And so she is ostracized from the camp for seven days. And then the, um, the leprosy leaves her. Um, and so we have that. There's kind of this Moses mediating to God and bringing about the healing of leprosy of his sister. So remember, Moses is a very revered figure to Jews. The second instance is not of Elijah, Moses and Elijah, but of Elijah's protege, Elisha. And Elisha heals Naaman, the Syrian of leprosy, in 2 Kings chapter 5. You've probably heard of this story before. Uh, Naaman, the leper, he hears of this holy man, Elisha, from this woman in court who's a slave girl, a Jewish slave girl that they have captured. And she says, there's this holy man, and if you go to him, he can probably cure this. And they go to Elisha, and they expect this you know, grand gesture, and he says, go wash in the Jordan seven times. And he's like, that's like that, not that special. Like, I don't, I'm not going to do that. And the person with him is like, just go. Like, we came all this way, and if this person really is as important as this girl says he was, like, just try, and if it doesn't work, it doesn't work, and he doesn't, and sure enough, he's healed. So we have the seven showing up again. We have this prophetic figure, Elisha, who's in kind of the line of Elijah, Moses and Elijah, very important figures. And then the last instance of leprosy is a much lesser known one. This is in Second, uh, Second Chronicles chapter 26. And King Uzziah, who was one of the corrupt kings, he enters the temple... And he tries to offer a sacrifice or an offering of incense to the Lord, which is something only the priests were allowed to do. Even though he was king, he did not have the right to do this. And so he goes and the priests confront him and they say, you're not allowed to do this. And as punishment, leprosy breaks out on his forehead and it lasted his entire life. He died of leprosy. He's one of the very corrupt kings that was at the time after King David and King Solomon eventually led to the split between north and south and the corruption of the Israelites that led them eventually into exile. So we have kind of the priesthood at work in identifying the difference between purity and cleanliness and sin, calling out this pride of King Uzziah. And then we have these two revered figures, Moses and Elijah, or the protege of Elijah, um, representing the law and the prophets, and how they have in some capacity the ability to intercede for or heal someone of leprosy. And so when Jesus does this, there's another instance where he's kind of embodying the power of the law and the prophets and the priesthood all at once, being able to show like the, the, the horrors and the depravity in one sense of leprosy, but then also bring, being able to bring this divine supernatural healing to it. Uh, so that's the instances of leprosy. What is leprosy and what did the law say about it? There's two whole chapters in Leviticus devoted to leprosy. Leviticus 13 and Levit Leviticus 14. Our first reading this Sunday is snippets of Leviticus 13, the very beginning of Leviticus 13, and then what happens if you are a leper. And then Leviticus 14 is how do you get cleansed or how do you become clean if you are healed of leprosy, okay? So a little bit about leprosy. Leprosy was a term that they used 
Uh, the word leprosy comes from a root word that means like a, a scaly or rashy infection on the skin. So this could have been anything from eczema, ringworm, uh, rosacea, any kind of skin or rash disease. And then there is actually what we know today as Hansen's disease, which is actually like very deteriorating leprosy. That really affects your extremities and your face often first. It can disfigure you. Your appendages can fall off. It's very painful, very awful disease. It's been predominantly eradicated in the West, but it still exists in some parts of the world. Um, St. Damien of Molokai went to Molokai in Hawaii to minister to a leper colony. Mother Teresa in Calcutta, she encountered many lepers in Calcutta, and there are still many there. Uh, and so this is a disease that still exists, and it's horrifyingly painful and disfiguring to a person. When someone got leprosy, there was no way to heal them. There was no way to heal them. This is why Jesus proposes that he goes to a priest, because there was no hope to go to a doctor. A doctor could do nothing for you. When you got leprosy, there was uh, the only thing that the community could do and that the law prescribed was let's prevent the spread. And so we will send the lepers outside of the city to live off on their own and to rely on the stewardship of other people and to live as beggars so that leprosy doesn't spread because it's, very, it's contagious based on skin contact or bodily fluids. Um, so it is pretty contagious. Not airborne or anything like that, but you can catch it if you touch a leper. Um, which is what's shocking about Jesus touching a leper here in this instance, okay? So if you have leprosy, that's what happens. Um, there's a medical injury going on. You have an actual disease. There's a spiritual ailment. You are considered completely unclean. You cannot come to the temple for worship. You can't even come into the town. There's the social uh, disease of leprosy where you are totally isolated from everyone else, and you are meant to go live sometimes in a leper colony. But imagine if you have ringworm, and you're cast out and you go to live with lepers who have actual leprosy, you're probably gonna catch actual leprosy. So you're pretty much like in a really bad situation if you get any of these different types of infections. Um, and then lastly, this uh, financial reality, you're unable to work. You have to rely completely on begging if people will, will come and help on your behalf to bring you food or things like that. When you are uh, declared as being unclean because of leprosy, you're immediately sent out of the town Anything that you own, if it's seen to be uh, contaminated, um, this is also true in, in Leviticus of like fungal uh, diseases or molds on objects. They're completely destroyed. If this happens to a house and it can't be cleansed, it's completely burnt to the ground. And you are, uh, you are ostracized from the community, and this is what you're required to do. This is part of the first reading for this uh, upcoming Sunday from Leviticus 13. You must uh, rend your garments. So the garments of one afflicted with a scaly infection shall be rent, your hair must always be disheveled. Your mustache area must be covered. The individual shall cry out, unclean, unclean. And as long as the affection is present, the person shall be unclean. They shall dwell apart, taking residence outside of the camp. This means you were to stay 50 paces away from others. Always uh, not like uh, if there was wind, you had to always be downwind of other people so that the wind wouldn't carry your scent or your presence to other people. And you had literally had to cry out anytime you saw another person, if they were coming close to you on a road outside of the territory, unclean, unclean, don't come near me. I am rejected from society, essentially. Now imagine just the emotional turmoil of that. And anytime this happened, you had to go outside of the camp for at least seven days before you could present yourself to the priest again. You couldn't come back into the town. The priest had to come out to you and be able to observe at least from a distance initially at first if you had any remission. 
Okay, so if the color had changed in some way, if it looked like it was better, they could de declare you clean or potentially clean, provide some uh, prescription for washing or for staying out of the camp for seven more days, and then you would have to perform all these different sacrifices and rituals to come back into the community. So imagine, you have no access to your family, you cannot be healed, you have no access to the temple, you cannot worship, you have no access to make a living, you have no money, and you are completely cut off from all of your friends and family. You have no one to help you except those who are willing to risk their own lives and health and their own ritual purity to come and maybe provide food for you and the things that you might need for sacrifice if you could potentially be declared clean. But there was no cure. You were hoping on the fact that you could possibly be healed. Okay, so that's what happens when you have leprosy. And then if you believe that you may be healed of leprosy, you somehow have to go get the attention of the priest. They have to come out to where you are, and they have to observe that you've had some kind of cleansing. And then you have to present two birds for sacrifice. You have to present two birds. You have to have an earthen vessel of clay that has living water in it, running water, so water from a clean stream. You have to have scarlet yarn, hyssop, and cedar or juniper. You have to find all of this stuff. This is so fascinating. Okay, so, and then you take one of these birds and you slaughter it and you allow its blood to fall into the earthen vessel of the spring water. The other bird, you stay living, you tie the yarn and the hyssop and the cedar juniper to its tail and you create kind of like a, a you know, those holy water aspergilliums. You create kind of one of those hanging from the tail of this bird. You dip it and the tail of the bird in the bloody water of the other sacrificed bird. I imagine the bird is not going to like this. You still have to take hold of this bird. Like imagine how messy and crazy this situation is. Okay, I'm trying to paint this picture for you. Then the priest takes this out and he sprinkles seven times the blood of the sacrificed bird and this, cl this uh, clean spring water onto you. And then he lets the bird go and fly off into the wilderness as kind of like the scapegoat image that your sins are escaping into the countryside. Then you are to shave off all of your hair, head, eyebrows, all body hair completely, whether you're a man or a woman, all of your hair is to be shaved off. And you are to cleanse yourself, to bathe, and then you can come into the town, but you cannot go into your house for seven more days. And if you are presented as clean again, you shave off all your hair once again, and you bring three lambs, two uh, male lambs and one female lamb, to the temple for sacrifice. One for a burnt offering, one for a purification offering, one for a reparation offering. And you take the, one of the male lambs, you offer it with a jug of oil to the priest, and he makes reparation for your sins because leprosy was seen as a condition of your sinfulness. Bad things happen to you because you sinned. That's what they thought. So you're making reparation for your sins, saying, I'm sorry for my sins. The sacrifice is essentially saying that you are atoning for them and there is some level of forgiveness. Then you make a purification offering so that you will be ritually uh, pure to be able to come forward for worship again. And then you make the burnt offering with a grain cereal offering of flour uh, and things like that. So it's like the standard base offering that anytime you come and offer, you offer also a burnt offering. And then finally, if you can acquire all of that and somehow be miraculously healed, you are now able to come back into the community. Still with all your hair shaved off and looking like that and waiting for it to grow back. Like imagine that, that whole process. I, I mean, I'd, I'd be interested to look in like the historical record if anyone, apart from those who interacted with Jesus, had successfully just arrived at being, being healed from leprosy, and there was a record of them actually successfully acquiring all the materials to do that. Incredible. Um, 
A couple really cool things about that, apart from just like how bizarre and awesome it is. The materials that you need. You have the two birds of sacrifice. They're reminiscent of Noah and the ark, right? Being cleansed in waters of baptism, new life, etc. But these items that you need, uh, hyssop, yarn, scarlet yarn, and cedar or juniper. Hyssop, at the time of the Jews, was used as a detergent and a laxative. It represents cleansing. Did you think about that for a second? Detergent and laxative represents cleansing. Okay, so it was used. It was used uh, in ceremonial uh, instances, uh, specifically at the Passover. This is what was used to spread the blood of the Passover lamb on the doorposts of the people. Was a sprig of hyssop. It represents cleansing. The only one of the only other major times we see hyssop mentioned in the Bible, other than these sacrificial things in the Old Testament, is Jesus is offered a drink of wine through a sprig of hyssop. It has like a straw-like component to its stem for him to drink this wine on the cross, representing him as the new Passover lamb. So in this leprosy cleansing, there's this representation of healing that's very much like the healing of the Passover and the new Passover of Jesus offering himself. Um, cedar, juniper wood, it is very resistant to disease and rot. So it represents, it had a medicinal purpose, but also represents like the pride of humanity in different uh, Jewish ceremonies or sacrifices. So there's this kind of cleansing of pride and maybe the source of sin. And the coolest thing, y'all, that I just found out this week, I'm so excited about this, is the scarlet yarn. The scarlet yarn uh, is akin to the fabric that priests would wear. They had to wear scarlet fabric. But where did they get this scarlet uh, dye? And I learned that there's a specific species of worm that existed at this time. And this worm would lay its eggs in the bark of a tree. And it would lay itself over the larva for protection. And when the larva hatched, they would consume the body of the mother. And the blood of the worm that dripped down on the bark, if you could harvest it, could be used to dye things scarlet. Now think of the image of that. Think of the image. I know it's grotesque and like, you know, odd. But think of the image of that. That the actual dye that was used to make the garments of the priesthood to cleanse people comes from this representation of someone offering their lives for their children so that they would be consumed. That their very blood and body would be given for them so that they could be cleansed from sin. Sound familiar? So all the way back in these ceremonial laws that are given to Moses by God about being cleansed from leprosy are all these images of Jesus being the new Passover lamb, of Jesus being like that mama worm who offers himself for their larvae to be consumed and that blood would cleanse them of their sin and that that cedar representing the medicinal effect of cleansing but also our own stubbornness and pride being rooted out all just in the symbolism of the very beauty of how, to, how you were cleansed at this time of leprosy. How cool is that? How random, you know, like you can't make this stuff up. It'd be ridiculous to posit that some guy 2,000 years ago was writing Leviticus and was like, okay, how do we tell people they get cleansed from leprosy? Uh, you tie a yarn of twigs around a bird's tail, and you dip it in the blood of another bird, and you let it go. Like, why make that up? Like, it makes no sense. It's the law, and it's the law because of what it represents. If you know that representation, it's incredible. And that image of a worm is so, so powerful 
to me because in Psalm 22, this is the psalm that Jesus prays on the cross. It begins, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Remember this? My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? In verse, oh no, did I lose it? Where is it? In verse 7. He says, well, I'll lead up to verse 6. To you they cried out and they escaped, and you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm, not a man. Scorned by men, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They curl their lips and jeer. They shake their heads at me. He relied on the Lord. Let him deliver him. If he loves him, let him rescue him. How cool is that? All the way back in the Psalms. This language that Jesus quotes on the cross, saying, I am like a worm, pointing all the way back to this random detail of part of a cleansing sacrifice for leprosy, all the way back in the time of Moses. So, obviously, a Jewish listener maybe would not have been able to connect all those details that we now can in retrospect, but they would have known that was the seriousness with which leprosy was treated. The law could not help them. Doctors could not help them. The law could only protect the community from the spread of leprosy. But Jesus here, at the very beginning of his ministry, is highlighted as cleansing a leper because leprosy is representative of sin. How sin can deteriorate and disfigure us to eventually where parts of us could literally fall off or cease to function. And yet Jesus, the new Passover lamb, the one who gives his life for us, by offering his body and blood to be consumed, even in our pride, who gives us this medicinal cure of the Eucharist in his very body on the cross, does that in the same language of the cleansing of leprosy in the Old Testament. And here, does it just by his touch. At this time, still, lepers were unclean. Simply by touching a leper, you would automatically be made unclean. Any other normal human, if they had touched a leper in the same story, automatically would have been unclean and not fit for worship. Jesus touches the leper, and instead of becoming unclean, his perfect cleanliness makes the leper clean. This would have been shocking to hear and even more supernaturally powerful to witness because of all the surrounding detail that they would have known. This leper was just screwed for the rest of their life, like completely ostracized from the community, absolutely no hope for reconciliation whatsoever. And Jesus, with a touch, leaves Capernaum, this audience of people willing to completely probably make him the Messiah and take him to to Jerusalem himself, all these wonders he's making. He leaves to go find this one leper. And in a simple touch, change everything. And then goes back and resumes what he was doing. Incredible. There's a lot more that I could say, but I get very excited about leprosy. So um, let's take a break there so I don't keep talking. Um, Any questions or other things that stood out to you in this? Jared. Okay. Um, Kind of touching on that. So he leaves for the one, Mm -hmm. but then he tells him, don't say anything. Yeah. Because he must have known this guy would have said something, right? Yeah, I mean... Does, does Jesus have a perfect, divine, supernatural knowledge? Like, is his omniscience at work here? Does he know this guy's going to say something? Uh, I don't know in that sense, because he is also human, you know? So um, we don't know how much Jesus allowed himself to be limited in that power. But I'm pretty sure you can infer that someone gets healed from leprosy. Painting the giant picture I just painted to, of you of how hopeless the situation is, he's probably going to go tell people. 
But Jesus, this is a running theme in the Gospel of Mark and other Gospels called the Messianic Secret. Jesus, he doesn't want to keep it secret that he's Messiah, but he wants to delay the time in which it comes out publicly so that he can do as much work as he intended to do and allow that climactic moment where he has tension with the Pharisees that results in his death to happen at the opportune time, the right time. Um, if he didn't give these warnings, uh, and we don't know how many of them he gave off these pages that were heated or not heated, um, but if he didn't give these warnings, essentially the argument is this could have happened a lot faster and Jesus wouldn't have been able to do what he came to do. So that's why Jesus says, to reiterate the question, because I need to be better at doing that, why he says to not tell anyone. It's interesting. Jesus, he's not interested in audiences. He had an audience in Capernaum, right? What does this leper come and ask? Heal me. No. If you wish, you can make me what? Clean. Cleanliness is not about being healed. It's about being able to worship. What Jesus wants is not an audience. He wants a congregation. He wants a church. He wants a people whose hearts are oriented to worship and who don't just show up to be entertained or see the supernatural event happen and then leave and resume their normal lives. That's one of the very important uh, kind of juxtapositions of this passage with the passage before it. Anyway, Emily. So we have to get to the New Testament to see how like all the laws of Leviticus have come full circle. Mm -hmm. But you're saying that from, not you specifically, but like from the beginning of that time when Leviticus was shared, like everyone had to suffer through all of that. Yeah. So is all of that just to build up the greatness of God or like can all those people just suffer after that point? Yeah, I mean Leviticus was written like maybe 1300 to 1200 years before Christ. So... Was it all just hopeless for these people who were lepers for those 1,300 years all to kind of paint a picture of, um, of what Jesus Christ could do? And I would say that probably wasn't God's intention. You know, God gives the law, and if you read the law in its entire context, it's a, it says, love your neighbor as yourself. That's not, what Je that's not original to Jesus. That's in Leviticus. He took it from Leviticus just like he took, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That's from Deuteronomy. So those are parts of the law that Jesus is focusing as a lens through which for us to understand the entire law, but they were there. And Leviticus has in it tons of laws about love of the oppressed and the foreigner and the widow and the orphaned and those who are ostracized and those who have been forgotten. So I think the law as a whole would have seen this as a practical way to approach those who have leprosy to ensure it doesn't spread. But if you took the rest of the law, you would have understood it's the community's responsibility to ensure they are cared for and still part of the community in as best a way they can be. It is clear that leading up to the time of Jesus, that had not happened. Lepers were just like thrown out of the city. Because if you read the law in its entirety, you cannot justify leaving, especially an Israelite, someone who's part of the chosen people of Israel, leaving them to go off and, and suffer on their own. You could have maybe argued, well, like if people have diseases, like this belief they had, it's because of their own sin. There's not really a biblical precedent for that. Um, you know, that's just what they had come to believe. Uh, and Jesus proves that that's not true. 
You know, uh, you can look at the whole interaction in John chapter 9 where he heals the blind man Bartimaeus. That whole story is about, this isn't about his parents' sin. This is so that the works of God would be made manifest in him. That's what Jesus says, or something to that effect. Um, so, God didn't create the situation just to forget a bunch of people for 1,300 years and make them suffer. God gave the entirety of a law that certain people found parts of too difficult to uphold, and it was their inability to uphold the law that left these people ostracized. And we can stand for a moment and be like, wow, that's really messed up. We need to look at ourselves and recognize we've got Ten Commandments, we've got a bunch of other you know, social justice teachings of the church, things in the catechism when it comes to breaking down the Ten Commandments, and there are a lot of things that we leave left undone and unserved that leave people still ostracized. Yeah, you're welcome. Chrissy. I also think you guys have a question. Just like over millennia, how difficult was it sometimes to like be a leader of other Muslims' sins and how Jesus had that interaction? Yeah. But I'm just curious, like it sort of says like he says that once, but then was that still ingrained in the culture, like in the first believers, or I guess like when did that actually stop? Like, where, like, the majority of people said, like, okay, we're disconnecting these two. Does that make sense? Can you clarify what you mean with disconnecting what two things? Uh, physical ailment and sin. Um, so, I mean, this that happens right away in the writings of the New Testament. Like, Paul himself separates, like, there are certain things of the flesh and things of the spirit. That's very much from Greek philosophy, so it predates Paul, and he adopts a lot of that. Sometimes too much so. There are a lot of Christians... And Christian denominations out there that take that so literally that they separate body and soul completely and make like everything of the body bad. So if you were raised in a very strict Christian home that was like anything surrounding the idea of sex or sexuality is bad or dirty, and if you inherit any of that, a lot of this kind of biblical interpretation comes from that misinterpretation of the body-soul dynamic. We are an embodied soul, that everything that happens to our body happens to our soul, like our soul is present in every cell of our body. So our body is a way in which we can experience the spiritual and the divine, and they cannot be separated. Um, but making that link or separating that link um, happened, I think, in the early church and Christianity. Because you have those of Paul, Paul's writings, and then you have it in just the, the social action of the church. When the church became more pronounced, uh, it was the first group that we have in historical record that anytime, anytime there was a plague, like historically, or a big disease wiping out a town, you would see in the historical record that everybody left the city. And all those people who were afflicted just died. And they waited a certain amount of time before they could come in and like clean up all the bodies and then start over. That was like the general way that you did that. And only when Christianity became a organized group did you have historical record of Christians staying behind to serve those people, to help them die well, to minister to their needs, and refusing to leave them behind. So even if they still had that mental connection between soul and body, it was no longer separating them from those who would otherwise be ostracized from society. That was one very powerful historical move in the Christian church that um, operated with incredible charity for the other, that did not have an equal before that. There were, there was, it existed in Jewish law, but there was still this idea that we're the Jews, we're the chosen people. And only once we're taken care of and the Messiah comes back, will everyone else be taken care of. There was still this kind of exclusivity kind of thing. And their understanding of the law. Um, Christianity didn't have that. You know, There's neither Jew nor Greek, nor male nor female, nor Jew nor Gentile, 
um, all those different phrases where those words are used twice, you know, two different places in the New Testament where Paul uses language like that. So, yeah. Yes? Uh, can you clarify, I'm a bit confused, um, how we know that Jesus went to, um, you know, find this one leper and mm -hmm. not say, like, um, like he said, like, I'm going to go preach to other nearby towns and mm -hmm. see what they're for. Yeah, so well, we know he's not in Capernaum when this happens because the leper can't be in Capernaum. He's not allowed to be in a town. So he's out of a town. So at the very least, Jesus leaves Capernaum to go find this one and comes back to Capernaum. But this is also, Mark, remember, he's just collecting eyewitness statements here. So there's a lot in the middle of the Gospel of Mark, a lot of the gaps that are not filled. Like Mark doesn't include three years worth, none of the Gospels include three years worth of ministry. There are a series of eyewitness accounts and narratives of Jesus' ministry that the author of that gospel is putting forth to communicate to you, the reader, that this Jesus is the divine Son of God. He is the Son of Man. He's the Messiah, whatever it is they're trying to communicate. So there could have been a lot that happened here in the divide between that, that verse. So he went to other synagogues preaching and driving out demons throughout the whole of Galilee, and then this interaction. What I was pointing out is it's interesting that Mark juxtaposes this immediately after, this idea of Jesus leaving Capernaum, this one interaction with a leper, and then coming back. That you could infer in reading this, Jesus' action of like, I'm going to go away from the crowds, I'm going to find this one leper and heal him, and then I'm going to go right back where I was. But the reason for that, literarily, is that we don't have all the in-between. A lot probably happened in between those two, but as a literary device, it's, it's a, a beautiful thing that Mark is encouraging us to reflect on. Craig. I've had an idea between last week's gospel and this week's gospel, mm -hmm. a conflict between Jesus wanted to do things in his way at his own speed, mm -hmm. but then being drawn into healing and administering other people along the way that maybe it's not along the straight path that he wants to go. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking sometimes, like, you wonder, like, I mean, in his ministry, in his age, he was only ministering for about three years. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking that the Son of God coming down to earth, I mean, three years isn't very long. Mm -hmm. You kind of wonder at the end, he's thinking, you know, well, maybe I could have been here four or five years, you know, and done a little bit more or whatever. Like, yeah. You kind of wonder, like, with all these things affecting him, I know, I know he knows it's all going to happen and all that, but with all these things affecting him, sort of like, was he not able to do everything that he wanted to do because of outside circumstances? Mm. To paraphrase Gandalf, <laughs> the Messiah comes exactly when he means to. He is never late, nor is he early. So Jesus, I think, came exactly in the way that he intended to, and for as long as he intended to, to do exactly what he needed to. Jesus could have come and stayed long enough to save the entire world himself. But that's not the way he wanted to do it. The Catechism has this beautiful line, I cannot remember what paragraph, but it says, God created us without us, but he does not will to save us without us. He desires our participation. And that's not just for our own salvation, it's for the salvation of others. Because if Jesus could come and do all this on his own, we'd have no need for evangelization. We'd have no need for apostles. We'd have no need for a church. The world would have been recreated and made new in one generation. Boom, world end, judgment day, new heaven and new earth. We're good to go. 
But Jesus had a different plan in mind so that we could become co-creators with him and create the kingdom of God in union with him here, here but not fully yet realized. So I think, yes, in a very human sense, if we insert ourselves into these positions that Jesus was in, it would have been very frustrating. Constantly getting interrupted, derailed, people questioning us, the apostles not getting it, not understanding what we're doing, telling people not to tell us, tell others that we're the Messiah and them going and doing the opposite. Like it would have been very frustrating. But do I think for a second that Jesus was derailed by any of that? Absolutely not. He came willingly and intentionally to do exactly what he intended to do. And just like sin and human corruption derail God's plan for our lives, immediately he can use that to bring about a greater good. And the same thing is true in Jesus' ministry, I think, that no matter what derailing moments happened, he immediately had the ability as the Son of God to foresee how he could use these for a greater good. And always, no matter how many wrong turns we took, imagine like the GPS bird's eye view, he could always see the destination and just reroute to where he had always intended to go. So as frustrating as getting lost can be, depending on your personality, sometimes there's joy in getting lost. Sometimes there's adventure in getting lost. And I think Jesus probably had more of that spirit then like, wrong turn again? Come on, Jesus, get it together. You know, come on, people. You know, I, I'm not, I think that's too imperfectly human of a personality to impose upon Jesus and not having enough evidence for in the Bible. But I do think things probably went messy because they always do in the human experience. But Jesus foresaw that, and he knew that no matter how messy it got, he could turn the mess into his mission. Any other questions, thoughts, things that stood out to you? This is such a good passage. I'm like so excited we got to talk about leprosy. It's one of those weird things I know way too much about. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes, it says moved with pity. This. Thank you for bringing this up. This. Um, this phrase in Greek it shows up in other places in the New Testament, and it's if you've heard me say it, it's the word in Greek that I can never pronounce right. It's splenknistheis. And it has this very difficult to sound pronunciation, I think, probably because I'm pronouncing it wrong, but also um, because it, what it means is like what, being moved to your very bowels. You know, like when you have that feeling like deep down in your gut of just like disgust or raw emotion, that is what is evoked in this Greek word. Uh, Jesus experiences this at other times. He experiences this when he sees the blind man in, in I think, Matthew chapter 20. He's moved with compassion. And he experiences it most profoundly, I think, in John chapter 11 at the tomb of Lazarus. It says Jesus wept. He lets out this cry. And this language is, I think this word is used twice in that passage. And you can ask why. Like, Jesus knew he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. Like, why be so moved viscerally? And it's because in these moments when this language is used, theologians say that these are moments where Jesus is mourning the results and the impact that sin has on us. In, this, in these moments, he's having the emotional reaction to the fact that he's so upset that we have to struggle with and suffer from sin. Even though he knows he's come to save us from it, he still allows himself to have the, the empathetic response of being moved to the most visceral emotional reaction on our behalf. Just, you don't deserve to experience this. He's so moved. And he uses actually a lot of very like, 
in the original Greek, Mark uses a lot of this like very visceral type of language in the in the Greek. Um, in in when he says that he he warned him sternly to not um, to not tell anyone. The word let me see if I have it written here uh, is embrim embrimisamenos, which means it's the same word that it, uh, they use to describe when a horse snorts. Just like, so you imagine Jesus sternly warning son that kind of like, like, just like, don't tell anybody this, okay? Like, it's like that visceral and human and emotional of a reaction. Because Jesus is so focused on the reality of sin and how it causes us to suffer and how that upsets him and breaks his heart so much that he wants to stay completely focused on his mission and to save us from it. And so, again, Mark uses this very visceral Greek. Uh, when it says that he sends him away, it's actually uh, exabalin in Greek, which is to cast him out, which is the word that's also used to cast out demons. It's like he's sending him away very authoritatively or emphatically, like, okay, like, just go, like, get out of here. Like, don't let other people see this or know this. Like, it's very, it's almost like a very panicked emotion. Not to say that Jesus is not in control. I feel like that hand gesture I just did was very Donald Trump. That just got me out of my head very weirdly. Um, I can't, don't know what to do with my hands. Um, so anyway, <laughs> I was like doing a lot of this. Uh, sorry. Um, what was I saying? But it was like very visceral and emotional. Not that Jesus is panicked or out of control, but that he's living the fullest expression of the human experience. And that we have kind of a glimmer of that in the original Greek and Mark to show that we have a Savior who relates to our human experience, who when we ask God, why is this happening? We have a Savior who has multiple instances in the gospel where he also is echoing, yes, why did this have to happen? This shouldn't have happened. We, I, you know, we wanted Garden of Eden. This wasn't what we wanted. This shouldn't be your reality, so I've come to save you from it. But he doesn't divorce himself from the emotional effects that sin has on us. He experiences them fully, probably more fully emotionally than any of us, because his emotions aren't dampened by sin. He has the most human experience of every, any human who's ever lived. And so he's moved emotionally in these ways because of the reality of sin and what it does to us. Yeah, great question. Any final question or comment? Yes, Katie, you got it. Um, is there any connection between the lepers being forced out of town um, and Jesus kind of being forced out? Oh, yes, so good. Recognize the switch here. Jesus is surrounded and invited into cities. The leper is exiled outside of the town. And Jesus heals the leper, and what happens? The leper can come back into the city, and now Jesus cannot even go into a city. He takes his place and allows himself to be the one who is cast out. This happens even at the moment of the events of Jesus' crucifixion. They release the revolutionary, Barabbas. Do you want to free Jesus or this man who was a criminal? And they say, free Barabbas. And an innocent man, an innocent man is crucified. And being seen as guilty of a crime he did not commit when it was truly the criminal who deserved that. And Barabbas in that language means son of the father. Bar Abba, son of the father. That Jesus literally takes that position of all of us who are sons and daughters of the father. He, the true son of God, and takes that punishment upon himself. That reversal image is so is such a profound thing to reflect on. This Jesus leaving the crowds, the audiences, to go find the one who has a heart that desires worship, to be restored to proper worship. He doesn't say, heal me. He says, make me clean, worthy of worship again, able to go to the temple, 
to restore him to right relationship. Moved with pity and emotion at the fact that sin exists and separates us from God, and even though he knows full well he's going to take care of it, he still desires to have that emotional relatability to us, to know in our deepest moments of suffering and sorrow that we have a Savior who understands every bit of it, who we can go to in every moment, in any emotion, he's experienced it. And he will sit with us there. He will cry with us there. He will cry out in anger. He will cower in fear with us there. He will laugh in joy with us there because he experienced all of those emotions. All to the point where he would come on the cross and he would take our place, paying a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. And just as he switches places with the leper here symbolically, he takes the pain of our own sin, the punishment of our own sin upon himself. And when we should be the ones receiving the punishment, he takes it. He takes our place so that we can be restored to right worship and right relationship again. An incredible gift. An incredible gift. Let's pray. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for coming in power, in purpose, to heal us completely, to restore us, to save us from sin and death. You did not need us, and yet you want us. You created us without us, and yet you do not will to save us without us. And so help us, Lord, this week to choose time and time again, day after day, moment after moment, to choose to be completely devoted to you in all that we do, to grow in deeper personal relationship with you, to claim you over our lives as our personal Lord and Savior every day. And we ask that you continue to save us from sin and death in every moment. Bless us each in the ways that we most need it. Allow this passage as we reflect upon it to inspire us in new ways this week, and especially as we hear it this coming Sunday, to be reminded of all the ways that you restore and heal and reconcile us and ultimately save us completely of all the things that we cannot save ourselves from. We are utterly hopeless like the leper without you, completely ostracized, and yet in drawing near to you, in a simple touch, you can change everything. So touch our hearts, our lives this week, Lord, and help us to be putting ourselves in positions to be open to that, to draw near to you so that we can experience the closeness of your presence. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.